This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah 32. Tonight, we're going to consider Jeremiah's hope under the title, The Days Come. Now, imagine with me that you're imprisoned in Jerusalem in A.D. 587. Your city's under siege, and it has been under siege for about a year at this point. Uh, As the months have dragged by, your guards have gotten ruder and ruder. Your daily rations have gotten smaller and smaller. And everyone in the city is tightening their belts. They're trying to outlast the enemy or resist the enemy, somehow survive this siege and make it through. But there's increasingly less hope that that's actually going to happen, that the siege is going to be broken or that the, the city is going to be able to bear up under it. And so people walk around with dark expressions. And here you are. You're unsure of what's going to happen to you and your fellow prisoners. Uh, will you be executed before the city falls? Maybe as the enemy comes in and they're just destroying the city, are they going to destroy the, the prison right over your head and you'll die that way? Maybe... The enemy will come in and they'll say, well, all these guys were in prison. They must have done something bad. Let's just kill them all and get them out of the way so they don't cause us any trouble. And here you are, this prisoner in jail in Jerusalem, and you think the future of the city in general is unsure, but certainly my future as a prisoner is unsure. I don't know what's going to happen to me. You're fearful, you're hungry, you're worried, and you're discouraged. And then one day a visitor shows up for one of the other prisoners. And that's not a great surprise that there's somebody visiting someone in prison, but this guest makes a very odd request. And we're going to learn about that request in Jeremiah 32 as we consider hope for Jeremiah. Join me in Jeremiah 32, verse 6. The Bible says, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel the son of Shalom thine uncle shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So, God comes to Jeremiah, and he gives him a heads up. He says, your cousin is going to visit, and he's going to ask you to buy a field. Now, this may seem odd to you for several reasons. Among them, why would this guy be trying to sell land to a man who's in jail? That seems like a strange thing to be doing. And also, why is this significant enough that God is going to warn Jeremiah that it's going to happen? Well, part of this has to do with the right of redemption that is mentioned in this verse. Um, Built into God's rules for Israel were laws governing the buying and selling of property. And so God had some specific rules for the people of Israel in order to keep land within families. And so there were rules that would keep people from selling their land to somebody who is part of another family. Specifically among priestly families, which of course Jeremiah is part of, therefore his cousin Hanamiel is also part of. They're part of a priestly family and there were really strict rules about what priests could do with their land. And so when he talks about the right of redemption, here's the deal. Hanamiel has this piece of land. He wants to get it off of his hands, but he only has a limited number of people he can sell it to. And Jeremiah is in jail, but he's family. So he's an option for Hanamiel to sell this land to. I don't know where the rest of the family was at this point. We're not sure. But that's why Hanamiel is specifically seeking out Jeremiah about this. But that's still begs the question, why does God care enough about this that he's going to warn Jeremiah that it's coming? Why is this significant enough that it made it into scripture? Well, God is going to use this episode to bring hope to Jeremiah in a really unexpected way. Consider with me what Jeremiah has undergone to this point. He's ministered for roughly 40 years, He's faced contempt, rejection, beatings, attempts on his life, multiple imprisonments, including one where he was in mud at the bottom of a pit. 
And now he's in prison, awaiting the, the soon fall of Jerusalem to the occupying Babylonians. And in many ways, Jeremiah's future is a big question mark. All along, he's been prophesying, Jerusalem's going to fall, Jerusalem's going to fall, Jerusalem's going to fall, the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to take over. And that's what everyone's been looking towards, and now that's right on the horizon, but what's after that? What's going to happen to the nation after that? What's going to happen to Jeremiah after that? Well, God is going to shine some light into Jeremiah's darkness. He's going to give him a little glimpse of what is going to happen. So let's continue the story as we see Jeremiah's purchase. Uh, verse 8, So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. So, Jeremiah buys the land, sight unseen. All right? He doesn't get an, a, a property inspection. Okay? He, he buys the land off of Hanamiel. And I failed to mention, but this land is under Babylonian control. Jeremiah's in prison, but he's still buying this land from Hanamiel. And you might think, this makes no sense. Now, Jeremiah does not pay very much, from what I understand. 17 shekels is, is not a lot of money for a piece of land. But nonetheless, it seems like he's just paying these 17 shekels for a piece of paper. He gets the deed to the land, but he can't do anything with it. One, it's controlled by the Babylonians. Two, he's in jail. Still, Jeremiah treats this deed very carefully. Verse 10, And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances. So he's doing all this by the book. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maseah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Now, good old Baruch is showing up again. You probably remember him from previous lessons, all right? He's been there with Jeremiah. He's been helping, but he's a scribe, so he can do this legally. And so Jeremiah is handing it over to Baruch and having him do everything according to the law. They've even got these witnesses right there in the court of the prison. Make sure that there's no question that this worthless piece of land has been legally transferred to this imprisoned man. Jeremiah goes on in verses 13 and 14, And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, the evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. So there's all this care, all this attention, and everyone is probably thinking that the time that Jeremiah spent in that pit must have done something to his brain. All right, why does he care so much about this? The, the city of Jerusalem is about to fall. He's in jail. This land is under Babylonian control. None of this matters. This land is worthless. Why does Jeremiah give so much care to this? And he gives this public charge to Baruch. He's making a proclamation of sorts. But then the punchline comes in verse 15. Jeremiah explains why he's giving so much attention to this seemingly insignificant purchase. He's still speaking to the gathering of people in the prison courtyard, and he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. What's the point of all this? There is hope. Jeremiah is declaring that there is a future beyond the grit and hunger and stench and misery of this siege. There is hope. One day, land will be valuable again. 
Right now, under Babylonian control, it means nothing. But Jeremiah is saying, save that evidence, bury it in the ground, because one day that's going to mean something again. Jeremiah gives this declaration of hope, and then in verse 16, he turns to God in prayer. And this is a beautiful prayer here. I, I wish we could take time to analyze it line by line and look at all the wonderful truths that Jeremiah is bringing out. But instead, I just want to read this prayer to you. And as I read it, I want to ask you to note with me the faith of Jeremiah's heart and the hope that he has in God. If you have your Bible open, follow along with me in Jeremiah 32, uh, starting in verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings, which hath set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and hast made thee a name as at this day, and hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs, and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror, and hast given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold, the mounts, there come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans that fight against it, because of the sword, and of the famine, and of the pestilence, and what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money, and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now, there, again, there's a lot here, but there are really a few overarching messages in Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah is saying, God, you are able He's saying, God, you know, you see, you have been there all along. He gives this brief history of the nation of Israel. God, you have been there the whole time. You've seen it all. And God, you told me to buy this field, even though the Babylonians are about to take Jerusalem. Now, there's a question inherent in Jeremiah's prayer. But the great attitude that he expresses is that of resting faith and hopeful confidence in God. Jeremiah didn't understand it all, but he had faith that the words God had him declare were true, that land would once again be owned in Israel. God responds to Jeremiah's prayer of faith with a promise. Verse 26, Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I love that God echoes what Jeremiah started his prayer with. Jeremiah started with, there is nothing too hard for thee. And then God says, is there anything too hard for me? It's as if he's saying, you said that about me. Do you believe that it's true? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on this city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. So God is saying, Jeremiah seems to have a little bit of confusion here. He's saying, all along I've been saying, Babylon's going to conquer Jerusalem. But now you told me to buy this land, and you told me to say that land is going to be bought and sold again. So which is true? 
Are the Babylonians going to conquer Jerusalem? Or are you going to save us out of this and, and we'll sell and buy land again? And God is saying here, no, the Babylonians are going to conquer Jerusalem. That hasn't changed. That's still going to happen. But he goes on. He, he further delineates the ways that the people of Israel and Judah have angered him with their sin. He confirms that they are indeed going to go into captivity. But, picking up in verse 37, he says, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again onto this place. And I will cause them to dwell safely and they shall be my people. And I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof you say, it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money, and subscribe evidences, and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. God said, Jeremiah, it's both. Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem, but though my people are going to go into captivity, I am going to bring them back. There will be a return. Now, there's a lot here that God is promising, and we're going to expand on this idea of this return in the next couple of points and, and see some of what God is promising here in these verses. To begin to clarify that, let's go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah 29. But as you turn there, think about the personal hope that God is offering to Jeremiah. He uses Jeremiah's land purchase of an as an illustration of what he plans to do. But he also uses it to build Jeremiah's faith and encourage his heart about what lies ahead. We see Jeremiah's hope in his prayer, and we see God giving great hope in this wonderful promise. So much of the book of Jeremiah is dark and dreary, as Jeremiah promises swift and awful judgment for those who have rejected God. And this promise here is like a breath of fresh air amid the stench of this siege of Jerusalem. And so for Jeremiah, who has been ministering all these years and he's been rejected and rejected and rejected, he begins to see that though they have not listened to him, though they will go into captivity, the day is coming when the nation will return. And it will not be all for naught. And that had to be such an encouragement and source of hope for the prophet Jeremiah. But what about the nation? Well, let's look at what God has to say to the nation of Judah in, in chapter 29. This is a letter that was written by Jeremiah to captives that were in Babylon. And this is actually dates back uh, to about 10 years before Jeremiah 32. Because Jeremiah is writing here uh, not to those who went into captivity when Jerusalem was burned to the ground, but those who went into captivity when King Jeconiah capitulated to the Babylonians. At that point, Babylon didn't take everybody. They just took the higher echelons of society with them. So King Jeconiah and his court and those who were most educated and most important in the land, they're the ones who had gone to Babylon at this point. And here in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to them, to those who are now living in Babylon, who've been taken away into captivity. But the message that he shares here, I think, is no less applicable to those who are later going to go into captivity at all. 
that go into captivity as well. And so notice what he has to say to those in captivity. What were God's words to them? Uh, well, beginning in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. What does he want them to do? Well, he says, Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished, and seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. So what are the captives supposed to do? The moment when they leave the, the city of Jerusalem, does that mean that that's the end? It's all over. Well, no. The captivity does not need to be a time of pure misery. God's desire is that the captive people of Judah would still experience joy and peace. But what's the key? How are they going to experience joy and peace in this land? They need to embrace God's plan for them. What has been the issue with Judah all along? They have been unwilling to do things God's way. They have ignored God's rules for them. For them. They've ignored God's messengers. They've resisted surrendering to Babylon. In short, God is saying, it is not too late to start listening to me. It is not too late for you to experience my favor, even in Babylon. They might have taken you from your homes, but I can still bless you. And that's what he's saying to these captives. Consider with me a young man named Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were young men who were taken in this first captivity. So they would have gone to Babylon with King Jeconiah and the others who were high up in society. And what do we see in their lives? Well, they submitted to God, they put him first, and they found his blessing even in Babylon. Now, that does not mean they were without trouble. They were not without resistance. And the greatest stories that we find in Daniel's life and in the lives of, um, we know them better as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these other three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the stories we know are when they face the hardest times in their lives. But what did they find in those times? That when they did things God's way, God was there, and God blessed them. So, these are young men who could have said, it's all over. We're leaving our, our home behind. We're in a foreign land now. There's no hope for us. We might as well just leave it all behind, including our God. But instead they say, no, we are going to stay faithful to God. We're going to do things His way. And they experience God's blessing even in the land of Babylon. And God is saying, if you submit to me, if you do things my way, if you pray for this nation where you are, if you seek their peace, you can find my blessing in Babylon. <clears throat> we will see, we do see in Scripture that there were those who continued to resist God and they paid the price. In fact, here in chapter 29, Jeremiah goes on later in the chapter to talk about two particular false priests or false prophets, Zedekiah, Zedekiah and Ahab who were prophesying falsely, and God pronounces judgment on them. But those who would be willing to submit to God could experience his blessing. But the hope of God, that God offers goes beyond just, you can have a good life in Babylon. It goes beyond that. Jeremiah also prophesies a return. Verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place 
whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now, some of those verses are likely very familiar to many of you. But I couldn't help but notice, to me, it seemed that the beauty of those verses was greater when I understood the context in which they're given. Jeremiah writing this letter to these captive Jews in Babylon. They're no doubt discouraged. They're no doubt wondering about the future. And Jeremiah pens these words from God to them. And what a comfort those words must have been to them. To know that God is there, that he hears, and that he's going to return them to their land. And that is his sure promise. Now they're being told that after 70 years, they will return. And now that's likely outside of the, the lifetime of everyone or just about everyone who's receiving this message. But that doesn't mean it's not a source of hope. I, they might not experience that, but they know it's coming. It's not over for their nation. And so they have the opportunity to instill things into the next generation and the next generation after them who are going to return. And so what great hope this offered. The nation is not simply going to be swallowed up into Babylon. They will return home to their own city and to their own land. But why is God doing all this? You might say, why is it that God would say, I'm going to send Babylon, they're going to destroy Jerusalem, but you're going back. You're going to come back in 70 years. You say, what's the point? Why would God do all of this if he's just planning to bring them back anyway? Why do they have to go through all of this trouble? Why do they have to spend 70 years in captivity? This doesn't make sense. Well, I think the key is in verses 12 and 13, where he talks about them calling upon him, praying to him, seeking him, searching for him with all their heart. Let me ask you, when Jonah got swallowed by a whale, what did he do? He prayed. When the city of Jerusalem was under siege by the Assyrian army, what did King Hezekiah do? He prayed. When Peter started to sink into the Sea of Galilee, what did he do? He prayed. He called out to God. Why does God so often bring adversity into our lives? So we turn back to him. So we'll call on him. So we'll go and pray to him and seek him and search for him with all our hearts. That is what God has been trying to do in the nation of Judah. Over and over again, these messages from God. He's trying to get them to call on him, to seek him. And they haven't done it. But he says, I'm going to send you into captivity. And that's going to be the thing that's going to get your attention. And you are going to call on me. And you are going to seek me. You are going to pray to me. And I will hear you. And I will return you to your land. But God's doing all of this to get their attention and to get their hearts. And often the same is true in individual lives. God does these things. Not necessarily, I'm not saying it as a punishment to sin, against sin. But to get our attention and to get us to turn our eyes back to him. Sometimes God will bring trouble just because we need to call on him. And that's what he's doing in the nation of Judah. So there is hope for the nation. They can find God's favor in captivity. They can also anticipate a return to the land. But we find in Jeremiah 31 that it goes beyond just hope for the nation of Judah. It goes, on, it goes beyond to hope for all Israel. Now Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31 actually constitute a song. Uh, these are written in a, in a poetic form. So I don't know if Jeremiah actually sung these words. I don't know if he had any kind of a singing voice or not, or if this was written as a poem, or what exactly it was. But it's written like a song, which is interesting to me, especially as we consider the, the, the wonderful, uh, rich truths that are shared, uh, considering hearing this as a song. But they're written po- po- poetically, but they're no less prophetic And they're brimming with truth. Now these two chapters, 30 and 31, were probably written right around the same time as Jeremiah 29. Uh, So this is 
I'm sorry, as Jeremiah 32. They were written um, probably later, closer to Jeremiah 32, which was just about a year, six months to a year before Jerusalem fell. That's probably the general time period in which these chapters were written. Um, and there's far, far too much in chapter 31 for us to do justice to tonight. But we're just going to hit a few highlights here. Uh, some, some things, three aspects that we see in this wonderful chapter as we consider the promise that's made here, which is not just to the nation of Judah, but also to her rebellious sister Israel, which generations before had gone into captivity in Assyria and by all accounts had been swallowed up by the nation. It would have been hard at this time to say that's the nation of Israel. They're all over the place. But God says they're all going to return. And he's got some wonderful promises for the whole nation. So uh, let's, um, let's begin by noticing God's unchanging promise. Uh, God makes some incredible statements in this chapter, but they're all backed up by his unchanging character. Verse 1, At the same time saith the Lord, Will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So this isn't just Judah anymore. This is all the families of Israel. And he says, Thus saith the Lord, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. So this is a promise made very clearly to the nation of Israel. Uh, and what is the basis of the promise? It's God's everlasting love. The love that God has for Israel is a theme that goes throughout the Old Testament, but it goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. I love Deuteronomy 7 and what it says about God's love for Israel. Uh, very briefly there, Moses says to the nation, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, why did God love Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Because he wanted to. That's what Moses is saying here. He's saying, you haven't deserved this. You weren't some special nation. And God was like, ooh, I want them on my team. No, God said, well, that's a small nation. That's a weak nation. But I'm going to love that nation. I'm going to choose that nation. That's going to be mine. And God chose to love Israel. And because it's all in his character, his love for them is unchanging. And this is an unshakable relationship. God further proclaims the unchangeableness of the promises that he's making in verses 35 to 37 of Jeremiah 31. There he says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, in other words, if the sun stops shining, if the moon and stars stop shining, then, he says, the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. He says, if those things cease to be, those things that I put in motion, that I'm controlling, if they stop, then you can expect that I'll stop loving Israel. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. So what is he saying? Well, he's using figures of speech here, but he's saying, this is an act of God. This is not that Israel has done something to deserve me. This is not that Israel, as long as they do these certain things, then I'll keep loving them. He said, this is my character. This is who I am. I have decided to do these things for Israel. I have chosen them. And the only way that that can stop is if I stop being God. That's what he's saying here. 
These are unchanging promises. Much has changed since the days of Deuteronomy 7. But God's love has not changed, and it will not change. And nothing that Israel and Judah do will ever change that. And people say that God of the Old Testament isn't a God of love. So, this is an unchanging promise that God makes. But let's take a, a, a little sampling, a little glimpse of the beautiful future that he promises to his covenant people. Verse 4, Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise up ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. There's much more of this sort of language in the next 20 or so verses as God promises to return the people to the land and to give them a fruitful and blessed existence there. But that is not all. God goes on to declare a new covenant. And God outlines this covenant in verses 31 through 34. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, do we not all long for the day when complete devotion to God will be something that is perfectly motivated from inside us? That we won't have to rely on outside motivation to keep us faithful to God? That it'll just flow out of here? When God's law will not just be here, but it'll be here? And that is something that we can look forward to when we meet Jesus. We'll be able to experience that reality. But here, in Jeremiah 31, God promises that blessing, his law in the heart, for the whole nation of Israel. He says that he will make a new covenant with this nation that they will never break. And under that new covenant, they will all be turned to him. Yeah. So this is, this is something that goes beyond just the people of Judah returning to their nation. This is something that goes beyond Jeremiah's time, and it goes beyond the time of Scripture. This is something that is yet future that we're looking at here. I'm not going to get into the theological weeds here with uh, the New Covenant, especially because there'd be a lot of controversy to try to unpack when it comes to the New Covenant, what that refers to, and all that that means. Um, I, there, there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of debate over this. But I do want to point one thing out for, for clarity. And I do hope that as you read this passage, there's certain things about this that people argue about that you don't even need to try to argue about because it's very clear from the passage, I think. But um, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper... He held up the cup and he said, This is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So at that last supper, 
Jesus established a new testament, which means a new covenant. We as Gentile believers are currently partakers of that new covenant. A covenant which, by which we share in his death, his resurrection, his new life. It's a covenant that's been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that if we have had the blood of Jesus Christ imputed to us, we've had our sins cleansed by his blood, we are partakers in that new covenant. That new covenant is not this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. These are two separate covenants we're talking about. So if you start to get confused with this and you say, well, there's, Jesus, there's this new covenant that Jesus talks about and there's this new covenant that Jeremiah talks about and some people try to conflate the two and they end up in some really weird theological territory. So I just wanted to clarify that. We're talking about two different new covenants um, when we talk about the new covenant of Christ and the new covenant between God and Israel that Jeremiah is referring to here. And you might say, none of that means anything to me. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't care. Uh, that's okay. Um, but I just wanted to be clear on that. There is some mystery here about exactly when and how this is going to occur, how it plays into God's eternal purposes. Um, and like I said, there, there are great debates waged among Bible scholars over the meaning of the words of Jeremiah 31. But though there is some degree of uncertainty... These are great and precious promises that make us gasp with wonder at the future that Jeremiah saw that we have yet to see. Even in a jail cell, Jeremiah had hope. A hope that applied to him personally, but it also applied to the great, eternal, mysterious purposes of God. And I love how as we look at the hope of Jeremiah, it goes from the, the, the very smallest, this one individual man, wondering what's going to happen to him. Wondering what's going to follow this fall of Jerusalem. What does my future look like? To what is the great purpose of God from all of eternity that he is working out? And, and, and we get to see both of those through Jeremiah. That God cares about this one solitary prophet, but he also has this grand eternal plan, and he's doing both at the same time. And so Jeremiah can have hope, both on a personal level, but also on a cosmic level. Yesterday, my Apple Watch saved the day. Um, I, was, I got my finger stuck in the wall. I was working on one of these retractable walls here, trying to do something with it. And these things are beautiful when they work the right way. But there are some strong springs involved that, that hold these things together. And um, in this case, the springs did things differently from how I was hoping they would. And um, it sprung back and my finger got caught in the wall. And it's tight enough that I, I couldn't get my finger out of the wall. And so there was a moment of terror. <laughs> I mean, really. Well, the pain actually, not so much until after it got out of the wall. <laughs> but I'm, I'm there, and my finger's in the wall, and suddenly I'm like, I can't, move. I can't move. I cannot get my finger out of this wall. It doesn't matter. I, I would have to break something to get my finger out. But what am I going to do? And there's this moment of panic, and then the panic quickly passed because I realized I can get in touch with somebody. Um, in fact, my finger was stuck like this, and I was using this hand to try to relieve some of the pressure on my finger. I couldn't pull the wall back, but I could at least relieve some pressure so it wasn't crushing it. I didn't even have to take the hand off to reach and get my phone. I could talk to my watch and get my watch to call Pastor Radice. And so I called Pastor Radice on my watch, and he and Brother Callahan rushed down, and they saved the day. They, they delivered me from the wall. All right. But I, there were a couple of minutes. Yes, I was very grateful for my watch yesterday and for the fact that I had means of getting in touch with somebody. Um, for a couple minutes there, I was helpless. I, I was stuck there. I, I could not get my finger out. But I was not hopeless. 
because I knew that I could get help. And once I had called Pastor Radice, I knew that help was on the way. <laughs> and my finger was stuck in that wall for a couple minutes. But that was okay. Not because it was easy, not because it was painless, but because I knew I was going to get my finger out of that wall. That's right. <laughs> well, a number of years ago, a former staff member here at Good News got his hand stuck in the wall. I'm not going to mention his name, um, not for any reason except that I didn't check with him about telling this story about him. So I'm not going to mention his name, okay? But he got his hand stuck in the wall. He got four fingers stuck in the wall. The difference was he did not have a means of getting in touch with anyone. And so his fingers were stuck in that wall. And he, like me, was helpless. But as the minutes ticked by, he also began to feel hopeless. It was something like an hour before somebody showed up and helped him get his fingers out of that wall. So in one way, the same thing happened to both of us. We both got some part of ourselves stuck in the wall. But ours were two very different experiences. For one, because of the amount of time that we spent stuck. But also because no matter how unpleasant it was for me, I had hope. I could wait the minutes that it took for my rescuers to show up. Because it, it, I, I knew that help was coming. On the other hand, this other guy did not know when or if help was coming. And that makes a big difference. And what I want to point out tonight is we have hope. We do not know how closely our lives might parallel Jeremiah's. We don't know the future of our nation. We could face troubles much like some of what Jeremiah experienced. But through it all, we can have hope. We can have personal hope that stems from our own walk with God. Knowing that no matter what our circumstances are, we can find the face of God if we will pray to Him and wholeheartedly seek Him. And we can have hope knowing that God is playing the long game. His purposes from before the foundation of the world have not once been thwarted, and they will never be taken off course. To the very end of time, we can hope in God. Jerusalem did fall, and many people were killed, and we're going to mention some of the sad details of that next week, but hope was not lost for Jeremiah for Judah, or for the nation of Israel. And even today, as Israel continues to come under attack from many fronts, and the future seems so uncertain, hope is not lost. All Israel will one day again know the favor of God. And for you and I, on a personal level, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 7, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. So that's the hope of Jeremiah. Are there any questions or comments this evening before we wrap up? That new covenant that Jeremiah 31 is speaking of, that is specifically to the nation of Israel? I, that's my understanding of Scripture. That's my belief. There are those who would disagree about that. But I think that the, the, terminal, the, the language that's used is very clear. I, I think that God intentionally brought out the fact that he said all the families of Israel, and then in another place he said Israel and Judah. And so some people would spiritualize that and say that the church is spiritual Israel, and I just don't think we can rightly do that with Scripture. I don't think Scripture allows us to make that interpretation on it. I think we need to, we need to stick with that. So that, that would be my position. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's proper... Um, hermeneutics of, of that passage. <coughs> Anything else tonight? All right. Bible reading for this week. Jeremiah 30, 31, 42, 43, and 44. 
And if you have been keeping up with the Bible reading and you read these chapters this week, you will have read the whole book of Jeremiah. So pat yourself on the back after you do that. All right? Can we get a gold star? Um, you can talk to your wife about that. I'm sure she'd be happy to oblige. Uh, next week, Jeremiah is going to sit among the ruins of Jerusalem and weep. We'll examine that image that has captured so many people's imaginations of the prophet weeping as he writes surrounded by the rubble of Jerusalem. And there are dozens of paintings, pieces of art from history trying to capture that moment. But that's what we're going to consider next week. We're going to once again watch the prophet weep as he writes the book of Lamentations. And we're going to see what Jeremiah has to teach us with his tears. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for the fact that there is hope. A hope that is sure, that has no no question of its um, our ability to be confident. Lord, we have questions <coughs> about the future. Uh, that is sure. We, we, we don't understand it all. We don't see it all. But we have no question about who is going to guide us through that future. Thank you that like Jeremiah, we can have personal hope, knowing that you are at work in our lives, that no matter what the future holds, you have a plan for us through it. No matter how dark the days that we're going through now, you see beyond that, and you have a purpose beyond that. Lord, help us to find confidence in that. Lord, help us as you bring us through these things, these difficulties, help us to seek you with all our hearts. Help us to pray to you. Help us to call to you. And then, Lord, help us not lose sight of your great eternal purpose. And that we can have hope on a larger scale because your eternal plan is moving along just as you want it to. And may we find our place in that plan and serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.